Welcome to Lamestream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. You please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast, smash the subscribe button. We would love for you to hit it. And please, if you're so inclined, tell one person about the podcast. Just one person. That's all we ask. I don't think it's asking a whole lot. Just I don't think it's person. asking very much at all. We asked a lot of things of Stephen Godfrey. Who is on the show today from Banner Society and a variety of other things, platforms, podcasts, shows, who knows? He's done everything. Um, he essentially is, is one of the go-to reporters in the college football world as it pertains to hiring and firing, coaching searches in the process and how the sausage is made. And so we thought we would have, we thought we'd have a long conversation with him about exactly this time of year, what's going on with these college programs, how are coaches fired and hired? How does the media media cover them and what role do they play within those processes? And uh, he, per usual, had a lot of words to say. <laughs> the uh, Godfrey is, will take you, this is not inside baseball. This is inside, inside baseball. I mean, this is, this is some real, how did it get done sort of stuff. Uh, and I, and I love him for it. He's just one of the, he's one of my favorite follows. I, I, I'm a friend of his. You know, full disclaimer, he's done work for me uh, and written for me in a couple of different places. Uh, he's a hell of a writer, but uh, more than more than anything else, uh, he is just he has one of the most interesting perspectives on college football out there. And, it, and it's it's why I think he is just a hell of a journalist. Uh, we have worked together some as well as full disclaimer here at Athlon Sports as well. Um, and yes, I've had a few glasses of whiskey with the man before in the past. So I, I don't think we need to do any more introduction to this conversation. If you want to know what's going on with the Tennessee volunteers right now and the power struggle and what's happening behind the scenes, if you want to know how the media gets information, reports information, how coaches and agents and athletic directors and search firms all interweave through this entire process, I, I, I think you're going to like the conversation. I, Steve, I don't think we have to say anything else. I think we'll just let him do the work here. Is that okay with you? Shut up. Coming up after the interview with Stephen, we will have ratings and recommendations, of course. Stephen Godfrey from the Banner Society, everybody. Stephen, first of all, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time here on Lamestream and a lot to cover here with you. But let's just start with your sort of vision and, and your interpretation of what the media's role should be writ large in a college football coaching search, which is very different than almost any professional coaching search where fans are largely making a lot of the decisions. So sort of take us through what you think the vision of what the media's role is through, in, again, in general, through a college, major college coaching search. What it should be. Hmm. Wow. Um, you kind of stumped me there because I just, I know what it is. I know what it can and what it can't be. I have never stopped to think about what it should be because I'm a little bit of a, I mean, I think I felt like, I feel like I'm a mercenary in some way um, because this system is none of what you're ever taught in journalism school really applies uh, in terms of binary ethics, you know, uh, uh, staying separate from the subject that you cover, not having opinion or inherent bias not having the context of your own life inform your work. Like these are all really, really naive concepts in hindsight. And I hope they, I hope they don't teach them in journalism school anymore. Um, as it applies to coaching searches, specifically in college football. Um, I think you have to pick how deep you want to go into the pool. 
and the pool is not necessarily the cleanest place in the world. So um, I'm, I'm going to tread lightly as we have this conversation because I'm not trying to get into the like backbiting subtweet game. Um, but I have made a decision in my own career on how I want to cover coaching searches. And I'll say this, ironically, after everything that we've gone through in 2020, um, including at my own company, I feel happier with the way I cover them now than I ever have before. Uh, because I've sort of thrown out the rules of the game and I'm doing it my own way. And I feel like I'm being transparent with my audience as much as humanly possible. So explain that transition then a little bit further. What, what maybe the rules for you personally were and what they are now and how that's, what, what exactly did change? Um, I think that, I, I think we always do a bad job of, especially in, in, niche media genre media um and, and that's really thing that, that and what i mean by that is not just football it, it could be media about comic book movies or hardcore capitol hill coverage it's when you have a highly educated audience seeking specific content i think we in the media do a bad job of underestimating their intelligence so let me give you a practical application a tweet comes out from a reporter and they say um a job is just opened, right? Someone's been fired and it's an FBS job. You will see, Brayden, what's the first thing you see? You see the tweet with the five names, right? And the, and the specific syntax of the, of the sentence is, is, is always been funny to me, right? It's, um, you usually see something to the effect of names I would look at, names that the school should, should contact or names I would expect. And so we get into this game Right. We get into this game, which is all um, I don't know what my language barrier here is, but let's just say it's all. OK, I can do whatever. Yeah, it, it's a tremendous amount of bullshit. And, and the reason why it's a tremendous amount of bullshit is that those names, especially in the let me let me just back up when I when a football coach gets fired and I don't care if it's the pros, I don't care if it's D2 or Juco. There is no names. There, there, are, there are no five names. While, while the body is still smoking, okay? I, I think everyone needs to understand that. So when you see the tweet or you see the message that comes out, um, and, and we can go with a practical example here. Uh, South Carolina fires Will Muschamp. That kind of set off the FBS carousel this season. You saw the tweet with the names, right? So I can tell you for a fact as, an, as a reporter that South Carolina didn't know its ass from its elbow in terms of what they were going to do next. The decision at South Carolina to fire Will Muschamp was one that was born in sort of a uh, combination of, of instant reaction and also sort of a long brewing impatience with him. They did not know what they wanted to do next. And on top of that, in, in South Carolina's instance, guys, they didn't even know who was really going to pull the trigger on a hire, right? You have an out, you have what we assume to be an outgoing AD in Ray Tanner or a, an AD in his twilight, right? Uh, who made the last hire, who became very, very, and the last hire became very unpopular. He was not involved in, in the hiring process the way an AD might, you might expect, like an Alan Green was at sort of the last minute at Auburn. So there is no list of five names. To get back to the point, there's no five names. Those five names are invented by the reporter. And it's either assumption, it's agents calling and saying, hey, this job's going to open. My guy really wants it. Can you put his name out there? or it's some mixture thereof. A lot of it now is kind of shocking to me as assumption. Sometimes it's the coaches themselves 
or, or, or a coach that's adjacent to the situation that will DM a reporter and say, hey, you know, like my buddy's the OC at this school, whatever, he would be great for X. But so then you see the five names come out and what, and then what happens? We see various versions of reaction. It's, it, and none of it's real. What I'm saying is like, so you're the offensive coordinator at one school, your name's been mentioned in this tweet. Now all of a sudden, I can't believe I have to respond to these rumors, guys. There's no, it's not real. We, we invented that so we could start a news cycle. And the coaches and agents invented that to test the public response and to get the search firms and athletic directors to raise their to raise their awareness of the candidate. So they're right there. If we're talking about sausage getting made, it's an inherent fiction in the process from the first step. How much service work goes on in this process? You you alluded to it right there. Reporters serving agents, serving other assistant coaches, serving athletic directors, assistant athletic directors, because they have a source network that they have been building and that they want to perpetuate. The answer is enough for me to want to do another job a lot of times. And that's the truth. It's enough. It's enough for me to have questioned my career on a, on a weekly basis from September to January. And, and some of these are, are not bad reporters. It's, but it seems like once the game is on, the game is on. And you, well, and let me cut you off right there, Steve. I don't know of another way to do it. If you are tasked with breaking this information, you have to play the game. And this is one of the things that I say out loud that I feel like my colleagues don't. One, that there is a game. Two, that it is inherently disingenuous at times. And three, you have to play the game. Who do you think calls me? Where do you think I got, where, where do you think I got my information from this coaching cycle? I can claim a moral high ground, but I still have to go get in the water. I still have to go do the dirty because... Otherwise, I don't have coaches calling me. I don't have athletic directors and I don't have agents. So, Braden, you asked earlier about what should go on. You have to decide how deep you want to go. And what I mean by that specifically is I personally am comfortable with the role that I've carved out, which is more, I'm not going to be the first guy that tweets out the hire. Nine times out of 10, I'm not the first guy that tweets out a hire at an, at an FBS school. I've done it. I've broken a couple. I think I've broken six or seven in eight years or something. I don't know. I don't keep track. I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that's going to come and tell you what happened, what really happened. And it may take me two weeks after the, after the hire, but I'm going to tell you who's lying. I'm going to tell you who, Oh, uh, we were, we never offered him or this coach. Oh, I never. Okay. No, what I'm going to say is, uh, no, he, he, these people were in contact in this medium. I'm going to give you as much information as possible. And so then when people say, well, we never officially interviewed him. Great. Well, you talked on the phone four times and I know that. So <laughs> was that an interview? Was that a, I don't know. Was that phone sex? I don't care. Like you talked and, and you guys had communication. And on top of that, your representation did as well. So you weren't just talking about the weather. This is not, I'll, I'll put it this way. I like that stuff more than I like being the dude on Twitter who's like breaking the coach hire and then with no context because the, the weird thing is, and this is where it gets dangerous because I really have to, again, I'm trying to maintain diplomacy and not be a righteous asshole to colleagues, but uh, when you do it for a while, and I, in fact, I don't even think you need to be a journalist. I think you can be an educated fan. If you do this for a while and you really pay attention to it, you can see the matrix. 
And, and I, I'm not trying to be dramatic when I say that. What I mean is you can watch and say, oh, well, this reporter is clearly connected to this tree, right? So there's, a, so there's I have different nicknames for trees, but I'll give you just a, a random example, like the Meyer tree, right? So it's Urban Meyer. A little bit of Dan Mullen, he kind of does his own thing now, but guys like Steve Adazio, you know, uh, Chris Ash, et cetera, et cetera, and that trickled down. Used to have Tom Herman in that tree, um, not anymore. And you'll magically see something happen, which is that you will see breaking news from the Meyer tree go to particular reporters. And then when we're not running around chasing our tails on hires and it's April, you magically see glowing features from the same reporter about members of or people connected to or schools associated with the Meyer tree. And you can repeat this over and over again. There is a national college football reporter right now who I have absolutely no ill will towards because I'm too busy in my own life to care. Who I know for a fact has a working relationship with one of the largest agencies and flat out that's that's the op he works for one of the biggest media companies out there and that's all he does. I can you I can see it. I don't know if other people see it. I don't know. I don't care, but I know when this agency has a client hired, he's probably going to break it. When he gets when they get fired, he's going to break it. And then there's going to be a paint by numbers feature story done in April. And then some sort of like, hey, look how good this guy has has looked halfway through the season in October. And I can set my watch to that kind of coverage. What my hope is personally, and I'm not trying to take food off anybody's plate, is that I offer something that educated fans go, we saw that coming. We can see this. We, under, we understand why these features are happening. We, we understand that there's a level, there's, there's some disingenuousness to this. What is actually going on? I try to do that. Like if I'm being naive and pretentious for a second, I, I don't, I love, like I know Wright Thompson, he's a friend of mine. I'm much more interested in being up than Sinclair. There's no uh, way to say that without sounding like an asshole. <laughs> I had no idea. First of all, I had no, I had no idea that the Colonial Athletic Association was making all these football hires. I think that's just crazy to, to think about. Um, my, my second comment would be, <laughs> my second comment would be, I, I, I do, because most of the fans, it allows us to sort of like funnel, invertly funnel outward to a bigger problem in the media, which is that all the reporting you're talking about it, it, those stories are not like, yeah, they get read in the moment and, and people click on them, people see them and they sort of digest them quickly. And so-and-so was hired. Right. And they move on, even though that's where all the work is being done. Cause guys like me, you, you say you choose how much you want to be involved. And I, I sort of have stayed away from reporting. Number one, I'm not good enough. And I don't, you know, it's not what I, how I was trained. I am an opinion person and I am in, in this other sort of arena but occasionally you guys have to cross over and play both roles. And so my question is, is how do you keep those two things separate and, and make it overt? Because again, you're, what you're doing is different than what somebody else is doing. What's that's different from some radio host in like Gainesville is talking about right now on a radio show. I, I guess what happens when it is genuine and you do really feel like this guy was the right, like, I really felt like Will he, and I'll just use my example. I really felt like Will Healy was the right hire for Vanderbilt. I thought that was a really good hire. I thought that from the beginning. Uh, I have some information that told me that that there was a chance he was an option, uh, but but that was who I would have hired in my very uneducated, just sort of college football expert kind of opinion. What happens when that opinion does align genuinely with what's going on? And so it's not disingenuous, 
but it you know you know where where are you allowed to sort of blur those lines if it's if it's honest if it is authentic i I tell people what i'm doing i try to as much as humanly possible and that's why i i tell people when i meet coaches i i you know uh i used to have a, a different podcast where i would do long form interviews with coaches and and i would say you know when i was when i when i would throw to the interview in the intro like hey i really like this guy or he's really interesting or he you know he said this and i think that's really good you know that doesn't mean I'm stumping for them. We'll get to the real muddy part in a second. But what I try to do, Braden, is when I like a coach, I say it. It doesn't preclude me from doing my job. And I'm not going to put myself in a position to look like a dumbass advocating for a coach that either won't get the job or doesn't even have a practical chance. You know, I I, I, I want to be transparent. I think that's the ultimate goal. And so you're going to develop opinions and preferences. I will tell you right now. Uh, if Hugh Freeze gets a job in the next six months, I have something sitting on deck, ready to go, that is going to be as transparent as, as maybe any piece of reporting on college football ever has been, because I'm going to tell you emphatically what happened while I was putting together a television show and a long form, like, I guess you call it like a magazine feature on what happened in Mississippi and specifically how people like Hugh Freeze and now the Texas A&M AD Ross Bjork process through controversy, take no, no accountability or blame for it and continue to make millions. It's not appropriate for me to do that right now because I don't feel like that would be fair to anybody in the process, including someone who I think abuses the system and freeze. So my goal is not to put out a hit piece and hurt Hugh Freeze's chances at whatever job he thinks he's gonna get, but he's not. So th- th- I guess there's, there's one very, very specific example. I like Luke Fickle. Um, I like Sean Lewis right now. I am a, I, I was, I was raised on the triple option and FCS football. And that informs so much of what I do. And I tell people that all the time. I don't hide from it. I think the most important sporting event every year is Army Navy. I have, I wrote an essay after a feature saying I was in West Point for eight days and it fundamentally changed what I do. And I can't go back. Um, and I'm not a military guy. I didn't serve. I don't have any, I mean, my grandfathers were both in world war II. That's it. My dad wasn't in the military. Um, so I just try and signal that guys. I mean, like you talk about Will Healy, like I know, Will. I think he's an exceptional human being. And, And when I was on the Nashville radio stations here and they asked, I always try and say, I I do this thing called therapy words, which is, I think I feel I know. And that helps separate what's going on, which is, I think this is going to happen, which may be like a single source piece of information, or I think based on what I know as an educated reporter of however many years that I think this would happen, maybe talking about a television deal, I know something's going to happen because I've been told by sources and I am being, I know is a reporter, is a reporter phrase, right? High, high rank, like I knew, I knew the University of Houston was going to hire Dana Holgerson. Okay, because of a source relationship I have, it's pretty freaking obvious if you if you follow my work. So that, that's just one example. Um, and then, you know, I feel is my opinion, right? I feel like Brett Bielema was a shitty hire at Illinois. And I feel like Jeff Munkin, who's from Illinois, would do so much better working the margins of that job specifically relative to the talent, the positioning, that, that, where they're positioned in the conference, and then what is available for Illinois to maximize, right? Now, I just said that as I feel, 
And I just told you my, my feelings and affiliation with the triple option tree that I grew up on Georgia Southern football. You take that for what it's worth, right? I think it's disingenuous for me to say the first part about Jeff Munkin and not tell you this, the second part, right? And I'm one of the few people who, I don't know how much more I can disabuse myself from my alma mater. I really like other than burning shit in my driveway, I don't know what's left. So if, if you still think that's a consideration, can't do anything for you. I, I, I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, shit, like I, I really don't know what there is left for me to do. I, I mean, the number of the, the number of hate text messages I've gotten for my opinions about Philip Fulmer, uh, uh, it's 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 wearing it's wearing on me, Stephen. <laughs> I mean, at, at, a, at a certain point, it's just it, it may be a little harder for you because you're in the state and Nashville is sort of like this is more y'all's opinion than mine. I think um, Nashville operates even with pro franchises as a vol as a vol media cycle, vol media affiliate. Really, I mean, you know, the East Side is so interesting to me because it pushes out like the Eastern media side of the state until you literally get to like Carolina or Virginia, it's vol football and lady vol basketball on a 12 month loop. But there's also nothing from the outside that comes in. Like you, you won't go on Knoxville radio in March and talk about the Titans or the Atlanta Braves. Like they, it's just a single block. And so I think like you being in, you, you having that affiliation in the Nashville market, which is probably the second, I guess, biggest UT market, I, I, I imagine it would drive you a little crazy. I screw with Withrow all the time on his show about it because <laughs> like, it's hard to play Yeah. So you said you were going to get to the muddy part later. Did we, have we gotten to that part yet? The muddy part is that I, and again, I'll just say this. I'm three months from 40. I've been doing this in some capacity. I mean, I, I was a reporter out of school out of college i went to college to do this but i've been a national college football reporter by and large since 2012 and a thing has started to happen to me one the coaches are younger than me which is fucking terrifying the second thing is that i people ask my opinion and that i I would pose to y'all is a real conundrum and i'm dealing i'm actually I, i dealt with it a couple days ago in that I have people calling me and saying, can you, here's a weirder one, Steve, what's your policy on this? I had a representative representative of a school who was looking for a coordinator who called and asked for a coach's phone number because they wanted to contact them through unofficial channels before they contacted them through official ones. Now I'm a reporter, remember the media. That's a fun one. (laughs) See, I I don't have a problem being a conduit for information uh, like that. I mean, you can facilitate something it doesn't mean anything other than somebody was having a conversation. It doesn't mean that you were advocating for someone or not. It just means meant that, you know, you had them in your contacts. Okay. All right. And, and in the, pro- I would say in, and in the process, you've built up goodwill for two different people in the process. So there's some element of, of doing your job there. And again, we're not talking about like terrorism here, right? Like if we were right. talking about something, unethical or amoral or dangerous or whatever it'd be a different conversation but we're talking about football coaches here you know along those lines though and speaking of the mud it's an incredibly murky process picking a coach because no one has full information when you have sources how do you evaluate how much like how much information they have how much they are being an advocate versus a conduit of information, how reliable 
I, I guess what I'm asking is, is how do you determine how reliable something is when it lands in your when it lands in your lap? I hate, I, I I discredit everything on principle. Um, I look, I botched one. I botched these. I botched one higher when I was starting out because an AD was purposefully feeding out uh, misinformation. I'll tell you exactly who it was. It was Danny White at UCF. And there was a report out there that UCF had hired Dino Babers. This was like 13. This was, I, I was still on the national level. I felt like a cub reporter and I got fucked by, because he purposely fed it out to people. I probably, I, if I recall, it was an administration source or someone connected to it. But then also, and the here's the other thing you run into. You can have multiple sources, but you realize they all live in the same echo chamber. That's a dangerous, that's, that's one thing that it really scares me. So I fucked up announcing that Dino Babers was expected to be named head coach. I don't even know if I use the word expected. Um, expected has become a new buzzword in our, in our industry because we're all trying to hedge our bets now and not look like assholes. Evaluating it is very easy for me. I want a pile of evidence. And I mean a pile of sources, unless you're in the room. If you're in the room, that's different. So I broke one this year, um, and I, well, I've broken one recently, I should say, and I had people in the room. So there, I'm fine with it. And the great thing is this, even if it's single sourced in the room, they're not going to lie to you. They're not going to say, uh, we're going to hire X, and, and they don't. And, and, and on the other side of it, the, the coaches interviewing are not going to say, I got that job, and he didn't. So you, you have you have a, a, a real confidence there in what you're doing. Um, on the other side, I am blessed because the understanding that I've had at Banner Society for a long time is again, they want, they want the why and the how and not so much the what and the when. And so I get to take my time and pull apart the situation, identify trends. Like I've got to, I'm going to work on something this week about how Marcus Freeman ended up at Notre Dame instead of ostensibly LSU or a couple other places and why that was and the politics involved and, and, and the kind of bad feelings that are coming up because of it. Um, that to me is so much more interesting than being, the, again, the first asshole who jumps on Twitter with no context, who's obviously serving a source and facilitating a source. To me, that relationship is not beneficial, to, in my opinion. So that's why I don't need to be first. I haven't asked, no one's asked me to be first. When I have stuff, I break it. Um, and, and I really started to enjoy playing around with it because again, the, the fan base is so educated. The college football fan base is so educated. So when I throw up the eyes, I stole the eyes emoji from three different coaches. I know that would use that to signal information happening though. When you go to your iPhone and you just write eyes in the little emoji, that's their way of signaling, Hey, watch this or something's about to happen. So I've done that before when I've had maybe like, I called it the pile of sources. Let's say I've had four or five people all indicate that coach X has interviewed for a job and I don't have the AD and I don't have the coach. If I have a, if I, if that pile gets big enough, I'll say something to the effect of, I will trans I, again, I will try and be transparent on social and say, this coach is interviewed or I would watch this coach, you know, like, because I'm, this is what I'm feeling and hearing, you know, guys, that, but I'm not saying he did because I don't know. And just saying shit like that to me would go so, so much further than than faking it than bluffing it or not running it at all you know to me it's it, it's it's how much how how educate how, or how much can i educate my readers and consumers because that's why they're going to keep coming to me it's not because i told them who the new defensive coordinator at western kentucky is going to be i i do find the the why and the how 
on these hires to be more interesting in college football and probably college basketball to some degree than any other sport. Because as you said, these fans are highly educated and not only are they highly educated, some of them are involved in the process itself. And that is unlike any other sport or, or major sport in sort of American culture today and sort of dissecting and differentiating, parsing out that information that you get from people that, like you said, are not in the room, but some of them are maybe in the room. Like, how do we know, you know, <laughs> like we've got this other world in college football that's message boards and, you know, and like we know these billionaires. We know that there are billionaires sitting on message boards, having conversations, having been in the room the night before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they are, they are, they get off on it. They are authors of their own controversy and hype and they love that stuff so you have to be careful everyone's an expert everyone has a source and that's the truth in college sports everyone in my life whether it's daycare pickup or t-ball league <laughs> or like I, y'all i cannot uh uh you know go into the dentist office or whatever everybody heard something about about something from somebody you know the re i tell people this all the time like i did not play football uh, I went into this business having, I was raised by virtue of what my dad did in the Northeast for a long time, even though I'm from the South. I went into college football because it was, when I was picking where I wanted to work at the student newspaper, I was a general news reporter, then I was an arts reporter, and covered music, I wanted to be a music critic for a while. Sports is a religion, it is, but it's way more important religion than the other religions, than the real ones, okay? It is the <laughs> dominant narrative oh, the of with that don't tell the bishop that <laughs> i think he knows um the, you're talking about the bishop in nashville yeah <laughs> uh i i don't i don't think he would mind me saying this but when i last time i spoke to him he asked me i had to leave an event early and uh my wife uh my wife formerly worked at the diocese in nashville she worked at several places in the catholic community in nashville and the bishop and i were talking and i said you know i gotta duck out and he said, oh, well, where are you headed? And it was it was an evening trip. It was kind of strange. I said, well, I've got to go to, um, I've actually got to go to Indiana. And he kind of furrowed his brow and he looked at me and he goes, where? I said, uh, uh, Bloomington. And he looks at me and this is the bishop. And he goes, why in God's name would you ever go there? Because if you don't know this, he is a diehard, diehard Kentucky basketball fan who is from Kentucky, who is from and, and is of a certain age and it doesn't really translate so much to our generation, but Kentucky and Indiana. And if you're of a certain age, you hate each other and he's the Bishop. So that, that illustrates my point best. Thank you, Steve, is that I can be in a room with anyone in my life and use this job and this culture that we're talking about as an entree into any discussion. Literally, if you put me in a room with Barack Obama or Donald Trump, I will get there. And that's the power of this con that's the power of the subject matter. I have to remind myself of that the days where I I do need to take like the crying game shower because it's just so is that a PC <laughs> thing to say anymore? Probably not. I uh, didn't think about that. Who cares? Great movie for its time. Who this cares? Is, I'm throwing Gen X references to Steve, so he will finally let me in the <laughs> It's one of our nastiest arguments. It's the only argument we have. Hey look, um, man, it's just math. That's all it is. And you so hit much. you hit the cutoff where it didn't. Um, 
We can, I, I can do a whole, I will, I will come on the show again and present like a, like a court case as to why I should be annexed into Gen X. Cause I'm on the, I'm on the Mendoza line, Braden. I think. Well, no, you are, are you wearing, are you wearing a Husker do shirt just to try to do that? <laughs> no, I just, this is, this is who, but this is me. Steven. I don't listen to music. Came after. I, I was, uh, I was officially born a millennial, but I don't identify as a millennial. I've been transitioning for a number of years now. So um, I, I think it's okay. What is, what, is the, what, is, what, what is your acceptable birth year cutoff? 1980 was the, the, the beginning of the millennial generation, officially, official title. So if you were born in March of 80, would you be a millennial or Gen X? Te- technically, you're millennial. Yes, you're a millennial. You're a millennial, Stephen. December of 79. Technically, Gen you're X. not. <laughs> so you, you just went strictly by decade. Well, there I'm, I don't well, know because because, I because I'm in the I'm in '69. He said, revealing his age. Nice. Um, uh, and and uh, Gen X goes back that far. Steven's googling right now. Just I am, double, I, he's yeah. double checking our sources. <laughs> Listen, it's Wikipedia. It's in the room. Okay, Wikipedia is in the room. Okay, so let's just if, yeah, they're in the room. Absolutely. If it's if it's yeah. on Wikipedia, it it, it counts. The best is that there's there's such an argument about this that there are like multiple social scientists arguing some a range from 79 to 83. That's what's so amazing. Well, and um, not, not to get off the topic, but I, I do believe that there is a group of and my wife and I deal about the, deal with this all the time. Like there is a group of us that like we 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 had four or five years of schooling without computers. I, I think that's a different upbringing, oh, and a absolutely. different yeah. a different childhood than even just someone six or eight years younger than me that is that had had computers from kindergarten on. We digress as a conversation I here. I can digress. Let's let's my my. I wanted to ask you again about the the boosters and a bit about how and the why the the hiring is processed. How how do we know at the end of any of these situations? We just had Clark Lee at Vanderbilt. We have Shane Beamer at South Carolina. We got Brian Harson at, at Auburn, and even the, the Auburn one as a case study is fascinating because it's being portrayed at least, and maybe you can back this up or not, that that sort of they threw some red meat to the inmates, the inmates and the feral dogs out on the yard. They 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 cleaned it up and they wanted more in the firing of Gus Malzahn, but then the adults in the room sort of barricaded the door and went inside and acted like professionals. How, how do we know, and Tennessee's dealing with this right now, how do we know outside of some ridiculously good scoop or, or, or phenomenal reporting, how do we know at the end of a process who actually is making the decisions and, and how, like, who do we blame for some of this stuff? And, and I, it, you know, whether it's a good hire or credit on a good hire or blame on a bad hire. Okay, so the blame will come later if Brian Harson doesn't work out. The blame is coming now at Tennessee because Jeremy Pruitt didn't work out. So if it works well, nobody cares. You can bury a body in happy times. I mean, that, that's the truth. You can get away with crimes in happy times. You can do NCAA violations. Like, we only start doing autopsies when there's a murder. That's, that's our culture. So that, that's a big part of it. And this is where I get into having to be really, really careful with my language, not so much explaining it to you right now, but in the way in which I write about it. Because again, even some of the strongest people in terms of monetary influence are sometimes not aware of the strength that they lack or the impact that they deliver. Now, I've also seen the opposite happen. Always fear the quiet one who never talks to the media. I can give you examples. Like, uh, we always want to identify like, oh, it's the yellow fellow at Auburn or it's um, the uh, uh, Charlie Anderson at Tennessee or whatever. 
Like we know these names. I'm never supposed to. I don't know why I'm not supposed to say them out loud. Like I'm, John Ingram. I mean, I, yeah, I was just saying. I don't think like a red dot's gonna appear on my chest because I'm redneck <laughs> with a bunch of money. Doesn't want me to say his name out loud. Uh, but sometimes it's them, but sometimes it's not. Uh, the, the weird, the fluidity in the situation. If we're trying to create, I think you guys, what we're, what we're attempting to do today is to create a little bit of a blueprint or a pattern, right? I think the fluidity of the athletic director's influence is the most important thing that you need to determine. Okay. So we have search committees now, and I've actually gone, I've come to a point now where I, I'm not saying I advocate for search committees, but I understand their role. If you think about it this way, a corporation would never make a hire with the economic swing potential positive or negative of one hire without consulting outside in outside opinion, right? A consulting firm or a, uh, just a, you would put together a hiring panel, a commission of people, right? There's this weird thing where they accuse the athletic director of like not being man enough or taking the authority or what do we pay you for when they hire a football coach? Well, a football coach is a hundred million dollar impact job if you aggregate it out over the course of six years at a major university. That's everything from the salaries that you have to pay, the marketing budgets, the loss of revenue, the loss of the loss of this, the loss of that, potential NCAA, right? It's about a hundred million dollar swing. No corporation makes a hire that important in in, in a uh, in a bottleneck. They don't do that. So I'm okay with the. Uh, I, I understand the purpose of search firms. Um, if the athletic director is making the hire, you're going to have one type of experience. If the influence that you alluded to earlier is as strong, if, if it's legit, if it really is as strong as we're, as we're saying, we're assuming, you're going to have another kind of hire. Uh, the thing that scares me, I'll say this out loud because I'm going to write it anyway. The thing that scares me at Auburn right now is that we may have both. And it's just, it, it is always a feat of human accomplishment that Auburn can like constantly one-up itself in wild fuckery behind the scenes. And I'm like, even after Alan Green kind of comes in in a very valiant white knight way and makes the appropriate hire in the middle of chaos, Mike Bobo is clearly a, a hire either meant to appease certain boosters or influence by. And I will not accept any other answer because I know, I know that that's not a natural for the offensive scheme that Harz wants to run there. And until Harz himself tells me that by himself, I will I will choose to believe that there's influence there. I know they coached against they 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 coached against one another in the Mountain West, and they had a great relationship. And CSU has always been this sort of like aspiring Boise, especially with the way that they've spent money. And a lot of people don't go to Fort Collins, Colorado, but you would be blown away at the facilities and the town. And like they're really trying to. Bobo's big shtick was like. We're in SEC culture in Colorado, right? And if you were like a scrubby white linebacker at like an academy in like Columbia, South Carolina or Birmingham, Alabama, and like you couldn't get into the SEC, like Fort Collins was your cultural speed. Um, anyway, I've digressed again. <laughs> I don't believe, I don't believe right now, I'll say this out loud, that, that someone like Brian Harson in his first go around in the SEC has total control of his staff. That scares me. Who the fuck is out there that's going to tell you who's a better staff for you? This man won a Fiesta Bowl. He's won his conference a litany of times. He's taken, he's threaded needle in the group of five by going 12 and one or, you know, 11 and two umpteen times. I don't have his stats in front of me, right? We've seen Brian Harson go into power five stadiums and beat that ass. 
this man's an accomplished coach, right? He's a great offensive mind. And I've had multiple coordinators at the P5 level tell me that they ripped his stuff off, which is the imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. So why are boosters telling you that you should hire offensive coach X? Are you fucking kidding me? This is, this is where we get to college football. This is that gall. Look, man, I want the Atlanta Braves to win a World Series. But if I was a billionaire tomorrow, Liberty Media is not going to listen to what I say. If I was a billionaire tomorrow and I told the Braves that they should go out and make trades against the, like, like Braden, you're a Mets fan, like what the Mets did last week. I don't have the ability to call Liberty Media and be like, hey, what's your plan here, dude? No, the, the only thing you can do is be a billionaire hedge fund manager and then just buy your favorite team. That's the only way you can do it. College football have has all these like aspirant faux owners of public universities. Can I put on that? Like we're talking about public universities, by the way. And there, there's this one thing I want to get on because it's, it's pissed me off this cycle is that there's this weird defense of the machine. And I don't know why, where they're like, hey, Boosters can spend their money however they want to, okay? So even though we're in an economic recession, and even though the state of South Carolina said the University of South Carolina system at Columbia specifically would experience somewhere between a 50 to $60 million uh, shortfall this year because of COVID in its athletic department, right? Even though they said that, it's totally okay that we spent about 30-ish million dollars to fire one guy and hire another. Because then there's this, this defense comes out and they go, well, like, boosters are giving their money to athletics. It doesn't matter. That smacks of naivete because those individuals have names on buildings. They put money in many different places. And on top of that, they specifically withhold donations to the university if they are not appeased. To think that there's an economic autonomy at these places between athletics and the university, is it's just naive. It's bullshit. And I don't understand why we feel the need to defend the system so much. This is where I get into the opinion of it and how it informs coaching searches, where I've written several things this year that I never once worried, and maybe I should have, that was going to piss off my sources. Like agents want there to be churn. That $30 million swing that I just described in Columbia, that benefits a lot of agents, a lot of lawyers, a lot of people in the sports industry. It also benefits us in the media because I wrote about it seven times and we're sitting here talking about it today so we can sell our product. It does not benefit the University of South Carolina system. It does not benefit the educational process at the University of South Carolina. And it's okay to say that. I'm not, I'll tell you right up front, I pay my mortgage on unpaid athletes doing, doing this stuff and crazy rich men doing weird shit to appease them. Like that's my job. But I, all I'm asking for is a level of honesty in the process. And I don't know why when we get into coaching season, everyone's so, so tied up about not offending an agent. Man, like if you aren't offending an agent, you aren't doing your job. Because agents, I think even a good agent will, will tell you that, you know, you need to, you, you've got to keep them honest. So why can't people at Tennessee then, for example, hypothetically here, hypothetically, see that it's bad for their institution? By doing all like why what like you said like it, it shouldn't be that bad to say out loud th this level of chaos disorganization immaturity whatever adjective you want to use how I get is it just impossible for someone who has that level of power and influence and, and and money to just step back from themselves and say you know this other person is more qualified is that all it is is it just ego yeah 
I mean, that's, that's a large part of it is ego because these people want ownership of the process. They really, really want to claim that they had an effect. Um, I've seen countless men who have built fortunes on work that they don't consider to have any place in history. So what I mean by that is someone who worked in real estate for a long time and was highly successful or was in medical sales or something like that. They're looking for, they're looking for significance and ownership and impact in their life. Gas stations, for example. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Wow. They are looking to, they're looking to point at something that will one day be in granite and marble and say, I did that. And where we choose to effort our legacy tells, it says a lot about ourselves as a society. That's why college football is important. I didn't say it should be important. I said, that's why it is. And the fact that they, they could do anything in their lives, right? You could build the Frist Center or you can make sure that five defensive tackles go to the right school. <laughs> and that's your choice. That's your choice. I want to circle back kind of in the source community here a little bit because one of the, one of the most interesting kind of pieces of, of the information matrix are assistant coaches. Yeah. Uh, because not only are they subject to the whims of these forces, but they're also major conduits of information kind of yeah. within this. How, tr how trustworthy is the, is the assistant coach community? Because, because those guys like to gossip a lot as well. Oh, it's yeah. It's the church basement, man. So yeah. I mean, it is just like, it is, I feel like that's a very Baptist reference, but like, <laughs> It is very much like the ladies get together for the fundraiser and like just talking that shit. Um, so obviously I think everyone here, and maybe you don't, that's okay. There's this thing called AFCA, which is the American Federation Football Coaches Association. I don't know. AFCA. Close enough. And they normally have a big convention and usually like one out of every three years it's in Nashville. Uh, they just rotate through like warm, warm-ish weather convention centers. Um, and that's where every football coach in America, and there are so many more football programs than you realize, trust me, they're like, you have no idea. Um, they all get together ostensibly for lectures and meetings and uh, clinics. And there's even a giant convention floor where they sell stuff like what kind of locker room mats are you going to use? What kind of shoulder pad, whatever are you like? There's all that. It's a five day drunk. It is a five day Bacchanal gathering of men in quarter zips with logos you don't recognize just getting bud light drunk off their ass and complaining about things and seeing coaches that they haven't seen since the last convention because maybe you're in some private d3 school in kansas and your buddy is coaching in the you know atlantic 10 what i have found is as i have crawled up in my career those people reach out to you. In fact, I'm probably going to, I have a lot of these guys who just live in the DMs of Twitter. Never keep open DMs on Twitter or just go into your backyard and cut open your sewage line. Same thing. But I do it so random coaches can, can drop me things. And if they have a verified account, I can establish a relationship there and then move it out of Twitter as fast as possible. Um, it's worked a lot, by the way, if people are critical about that process. I will be, I will be a second source on this process. It's an easy way for also so far, Twitter is not a foyable uh, medium. So they'll, they'll do it without thinking about, they're not, not having to worry about what, you know, what would happen with a cell phone. So uh, 
the validity of what they hear is definitely there. There's a gap. There's a gap between position coaches and young guys and what they know and what they think they know. I had a position coach in a building telling me who the next head coach was going to be at their school and they were wrong. (laughs) Um, That happened recently. Like these things occur because they're young guys and they're in a bubble. We talked earlier about being stuck in the same echo chamber. Um, That happens a lot. Misinformation is a big thing because I think we're getting, I think the, the top level agents and head coaches are getting so smart about it that they're putting misinformation out to smoke out. If there's someone, there's a leak on their staff, if someone is angling for a job and assistants usually pay the price for that a lot. So the best thing I do with an assistant or what I, I think is the best thing to do is just keep conversation going with them. Don't rely on them so much for who got hired and fired. Just what are you hearing? What's going on? I also ask them football questions. There's this weird thing in the media where we're all supposed to be experts on schematic and I'm not, I, I don't fucking know. So I, I just, by just saying that in, in print or on the radio or on a podcast where I say, Hey, look, I don't know. Why don't you tell me, why don't you tell me why trips to the boundary instead of trips to the field is more important? Like I think sports media would do well to say, Hey, I don't know this, or I think this let's, let's find out if I'm right. Let's find out if we're right. And I just feel like that fosters more trust with your readership. I don't understand why we're expected to be oracles when we're clearly not. We, we are experts on media and broadcasting and writing words, yeah. not not it, not whether or not you should throw out a 13 personnel or not. Exactly. And we're experts on what we've been discussing this morning. We're experts on that. But I'm never going to like and getting back to earlier when I said that, like, I've reached a point in my career where people are asking my advice. Should I hire this guy? What do you know about him? I always laugh because I'm like, ah, well, you know, he um, he's over relying on a bunch formation or he doesn't. I'm like, <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, I know what I see on television, but like I'm and I, and I know a lot about football, but I'm not a coach. Would you when I do those embeds where I, where I spend a week with the coaching staff? Walk, it's like walking into a 600 level foreign language every time. And I know a lot about football. Every time it's like, oh, okay, we're doing conversational Russian. Let's see if I can find a noun. And that's what you do. It, it, it's, it, it's fascinating too, because one of the quickest things, and it's like an age old tradition in the SEC in particular, just to hate your offensive coordinator inherently as yeah. a fan. And it's like, oh, the play calling was terrible. And, and I just always tell people, unless you were in the meeting room, scheming against that defense in this situation you don't have a clue if it was the right call or not like nobody has a right clue watching the game no in fact what they're doing Braden, is that and i've seen this happen before is they're reducing they're just reducing potentials they're just trying to change percentages to their favor so in other words x amount of time they run this we we what do we think our four best responses are to this look on defense and then they go all right of those four things that we can do well that we have the personnel to do percentage wise what do we think is the puts us in the best situation on a particular down and distance all they're doing are playing odds that's it that's why none of that's why smart well i don't i don't know any that gamble on football specifically but like that's why they don't is that they understand the the we see the over under and we see a point spread and and there's actually a point spread a percentage chance of nine or ten different things happening on any given play they'll tell you that yeah i feel like i digressed again it's the title of the show this week the digression. Well, I, the, the last thing I would ask sort of to tie up this part of the conversation is just how much, and, and it can be search firm related, it can be AD related, it can be source related, how, how much 
actual intentionally false information is peddled to sort of gauge public interest. I know I, I hear that narrative a lot with with fans like, uh, you know, they just sort of it's like a, a go to conspiracy theory that, oh, they were just floating this name to see how it reacts. And and I'm curious if I'm curious how much of that really actually happens is actually genuine strategy by an athletic director or a booster or whoever. And then I've also heard you talk about the other side of search firms and all the actual day-to-day stuff that they execute for you. That's actually very productive for an athletic department. And yeah. I think, I think it's probably largely undercovered. So what search firms do is they don't tell you who they, who, you, who to hire. But what they do is they show you the field and they show you what's available to you more than likely and people that they think would fit. The first thing they do is they interview you. Okay. University of Tennessee, what are you looking for? Okay. What are your assets? What are your, what are your drawbacks, et cetera? And they go, Hmm. Okay. It's kind of like match.com or whatever. Like it's, you know, based on what you've told us, the algorithm kind of says this, they make it their jobs to go year round, just learning things, learning things about off field behavior, learning things about how organized someone is learning things about the way they run their program and then they also do a tremendous amount of schematic breakdown. The good, the good search firms do. So they do bring in wonks basically to break down like, hey, he's actually doing something really innovative here. Or, hey, this applies to the next level. Or, hey, you know, this offense that might work at the American Athletic Conference level, would it translate to the Big Ten or whatever? Like they, they, they want to be able to provide those answers, right? So that's the work that they're doing. Um, as far as deliberate misinformation, I think I think 90% of the misinformation that gets peddled is not deliberately. I think people are so emphatic and want I think a lot of people want to believe um, and and they want to believe that they've got good information from their message board. Um, and so you know you, 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 they're, they're emphatic with imperfect information. Absolutely. and you have to be really careful with that. I think rare is it rare is it that you actually get into like a, um, a rat fucking campaign, as we would say, as I would say in politics, like, I don't think that happens that much. Anecdotally, I can tell you one place where it is happening more is the NFL. Uh, The NFL is getting into that because there's a weird, there is a weird public transparency now where franchises are requesting and then thus receiving permission to interview sitting candidates from, you know, other franchises. This process is becoming more public. Therefore, the the steps that a franchise is taking to hire a coach are a little bit more identifiable it's pretty easier to figure out like steps one through nine on what team who did this team look at who did they like and why not and if that leaves them open it does leave them open for criticism potentially so they they kind of try and rat fuck one another on so and so like i've heard a lot anecdotally this year about like this person's interested or this person did an interview well or this person happened this on the pro level which I don't dabble in that much. If I, if I pick that information up, it's like having an AM antenna. Like if I hear something, okay, great. I'm, I'm not really going to use it. Although I would, I would add that those days are probably coming to an end because we've seen now two consecutive years of an unlikely college head coach taking an NFL job. I think if we have openings in Chicago and Philadelphia, or just one of those two in the next week, that the percentage chance of a sitting college coach going to an NFL team would be, I think we would see it for a third year in a row. Simultaneously, we're also seeing a lot of schematic guys from the league going to high-end P5s, and that wall has come way down. Like, 
I'm still blocked by Pete Prisco from CBS because I dunked his ass so badly for him saying that like spread quarterbacks would never translate to the NFL. That argument was like five years ago. So there's the wall came down on ideology between pro and college and it came down quickly. And so it's like, we're in a post-Soviet phase with the NFL and college where like a, it's, it's just a bunch of incestuous capitalism rushing through one another. The idea of like Ed Orgeron multiple times relying on NFL schematic, uh, I would say sort of NFL ordained offensive minds to run his offense. That's, that, that's not normal. That, that would not have happened 10 years ago, eight years ago. It would not have happened. Let me, uh, let, let me pivot out of this for just a second because I, I want to talk a little bit about covering college football because it seems to me there's a pretty big gap between what's interesting and what's not interesting in college football coverage. There's a lot of college football coverage out there that is still pretty rote. It's still pretty kind of paint by the numbers. And yet I'm <laughs> flipping through. The, these are the last five or six headlines that uh, on stories that you wrote. And this just cracks me up. Does Home Alone 2 present an alternate Batman universe? That's not a college football. Yeah. Game. Sorry. Does Auburn does. not does Auburn know it's not a scrappy also ran SEC program? Every okay. SEC hire is a Beamer or a Chadwell. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you're getting at here, which is that I'm having my like Michael Douglas and falling down moment. I just don't want to shoot up a fast food restaurant. <laughs> I am losing my mind a little bit because I'm just getting to a point now in the industry where let's just say the thing, let's say the thing, what, what, what the, the thing that we're all banding about right now, like Auburn acting like a dipshit, just say it. Cause that's what we all, we all know that. And if we were all getting on the phone with each other privately after work or if, like in this height, you know, in, in the old days where we'd all go to the same bar in New York or DC, talk about that print that because that's the fucking news and so everyone in the industry can bandy about who's auburn going to hire but everyone in the industry is talking about how dumb auburn looks so can can i just say the thing that's making my eye twitch right now like that's that was the approach that i started to take and and why i feel more comfortable about it because again the more you respect the reader the more the reader will rise to the occasion there is a danger of becoming too too inside baseball, too, too niche. I have not found it yet in it because I, I do believe this subject area is so rich and it does attract a large audience that I'm, go, I'm making a decision now to respect the reader. Let's push it that direction and let's see when they say, hey, you've lost me because it hasn't happened yet. No, they can, they can quote chapter 13 from the book of Pat Dye. Like they can, they can do That's that. They, they can yes. do that. And, and, and I agree. And it's, Again, I, I hate to keep bringing it back to Tennessee, but that, that is the problem with Tennessee is that no one's just saying what it is. Like, just say, say what it is. It's a bunch of inmates running the asylum, for lack of a better cliche, and that's what it is. And it's, it, it's a messier Nebraska. And Jesus, that's, a hard, that's about the meanest thing I can say. You want to talk about Gen X? <laughs> you want to talk about Gen X? I do believe... We're running into a dangerous point for Tennessee, and I'll leave you with this because I have to go to a staff meeting. Here's the dangerous point. You are not Notre Dame, and we used to make these jokes about Notre Dame all the time being like, did you know that when the wide receiver who was about to be a freshman in college was born, Notre Dame had 
Notre Dame had not won a title or not done this in that in that kid's lifetime. That was a joke. It was a meme on the college football internet for the past ten years because that's when the cycle started of like Notre Dame hasn't been relevant since that since that quarter since before that quarterback was born. Right. Here's what's scary: Notre Dame, by virtue of some unfair advantages, I'll admit, can can re resurface. They just did. They just went back to the college football playoff. They just hired after getting their ass smoked. They just hired the best available DC in all of college football. Okay, so they're different. Tennessee is not. Can we talk about Gen X for a second? I'm serious. You, when you are an arbiter of information in the media, when you are in charge of telling people what's important, you inherently default to your own context and your own bias. Those are two strong things. And my context and my bias tells me what I remember vividly from the ages of about 12 to 18 because that's when you that's when you form a lot of your a lot of your cognitive bias okay and that's that's the whole joke about like whatever music you listen to when you're 14 years old or whatever you absorb whatever movie you see when you're 12 like there's a reality to that and as it applies to this sport when i was that age and when i learned about this sport nebraska was winning national titles and tennessee was the second sometimes first scariest team in the Southeastern Conference on their way to a national title when I was, I think, a senior in high school, okay? So forever, I will always think of Tennessee in that way, all right? Not a big deal. Good, go Vols. I'm turning 40. 20-year-olds who are doing this don't think that way. Brand managers, reporters, people on social media, people in the industry, have never known Tennessee to be anything other than a hot smoking mess. Okay. I'm not saying it's quite as bleak as Nebraska because generationally the same thing happened to the Huskers, but theirs was rooted in geography more than anything else. Tennessee's self-induced malfeasance is now running the risk of eclipsing an entire generation. So my inherent bias, when I draw a line on the Southeastern Conference, you have haves and have-nots. Even when they add teams, it can only be haves and have-nots. You have about a half that can win a title and about a half who never will, all right? I went to a college that will never win a national title because they haven't done it since integration. And no matter what the fuck happens, Meteor, COVID-3, whatever, it's not going to happen there. It's the same at Kentucky. It's the same at South Carolina. It's the same at Vanderbilt, okay? Tennessee is the Mendoza line of the Southeastern Conference. They are going to be right now the team that falls from the heavens to earth. They are going to be that program in my lifetime. As I am an influential member of the media, I am going to witness that. And the people behind me coming up have no fucking application whatsoever for what Tennessee was. I do a podcast with two of my former uh, Banner Society colleagues, and they were born in the mid-90s. They don't know anything about the balls in that way. And one of them went to Florida. Ask him, do you know what he, the Florida, Tennessee thing that's so ensconced in our memory right now? If you say the words Florida and Tennessee in succession, I hear the fucking CBS song. All right. Third Saturday, September starts the comp. I, I get it. And I didn't go to those schools. They don't get that shit. Ask that Florida grad who's like 26. He hates LSU. That's it. That's full stop. This is the problem, Tennessee. You have pushed this and pushed this and pushed this, and you think there's an unlimited reserve. There's not. It's going to change forever. 
it's it's happened to other programs. It happened to Minnesota. It happened to Ole Miss. It, I mean, I, I can give you an example from everywhere in this country, right? UCLA. And guess what? Michigan's not far behind you. So this idea. Way to drop the Michigan one in there. I think I think Michigan's ahead of them. <laughs> never, I never missed a shot. Never missed. I have only a shooter on Michigan. Oh, man. If you if you believe that if you believe that it will always be like this, you're doomed. You're doomed. You know what the other weird thing is, and I'll leave you with this. Those dumb kids that I work with, they don't remember Crazy Bama. We all remember Crazy Bama. Crazy Bama was Mike Price. Crazy Bama was better than like an X-rated Love Island combined with like a real life purge. Okay. There was nothing fucking better than Crazy Bama. Textbook scandals, Phil Fulmer not going to Birmingham and hiding through a speakerphone so he didn't get subpoenaed in the ballroom, strippers at Florabama, getting a coach fired before he ever coaches a game. Crazy Bama is something that you can't, you cannot explain it to because all they know is Nick Saban. Yeah, they, they were even the best at that. They were even the best at that when they wanted to be. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, no, like, like in terms of internal strife, they were the best. And, and, and so my point is this, like this idea of permanence or this idea that you have Alabama spent the 90s thinking that they had equity forever. And that's what happened. Tennessee has spent the aughts and the better part of, and, and I guess, God, I just realized, not really the aughts, probably the end of the aughts and into the teens, believing the same thing. Oh, well, like, feels like 98. We can just replicate 98. It doesn't fucking work that way. You have to keep laying the track. And so now you are, you are on the cusp of irrelevance. You fuck this next higher up, it's over. Over. It's just like Nebraska right now. They're like, they should fire Scott Frost. And I'm like, fucking hire who? Who are you getting? I talk to these people. Are you high? Uh, all right. Well, nice talking to you, Steven. Yep. I should always express my opinion more. Uh, I don't know. I have no clue what we accomplished, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, I think the I think the cut there at the end should just be, are you high? <laughs> and then just, yep. 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 So I've lived in Nashville for exactly as long as this Valley has gone on. So maybe I should just move. Cause I got here. I, so if you're a Vol fan listening to this, I moved to Nashville in 06. It's your fault. So it's like, it's, we it's figured fault. it out. We figured it out. <laughs> there it is. All right. Tennessee fans at, 38 godfrey yeah there you go you know what's sad brayden is that most people hit me up after i do these bits and they're and they, it's just the sort of like what's the, is it gary is it the gary payton gif it's the guy on the miami heat bench where he looks up and you just kind of like yeah kind of nods like yeah it's bad but yeah you're right <laughs> whatever that gif is i get that gift from tennessee fans I once a month i i here's my i will say this i do think that it's starting to land because it, it it started the night we drove old Kiffy down and it's been going on 12 years now. And I think people are starting to figure it out, but it may take to your point, another pretty bad, bad one here. This year, so. If you fire this coach and this applies for Florida, if Dan Mullen goes to the jets, I've never seen this in my entire career. And I don't know if any, I've asked people who are older than me who have done this. I've never seen a cycle go all the way through where the two best candidates don't get any offers. And, and we're still there. So Fickle and Campbell have not had, like, we, we've cycled through where, like, Texas has opened, SEC jobs have opened, and no one has even chased the two best names on the board. 
So well, I don't know if I've ever seen a cycle like that. Is it, that is that just Campbell wanting to call his shot? It's a little bit of that, but the fact that it's so walled off and no one even tried. Like the bottom line is, is if you're the Texas Longhorns, like you hired another Tom Herman. That's a whole other show. But like I'm just saying, the two guys on the board, yep, yep, are sitting sitting pat, and that's bizarre to me. It's the three. It's three really with the Napier situation. So it's the top three guys on the board have not left their jobs yet. Stephen Godfrey, everybody, Banner Society at 38 Godfrey. You can catch them all over the place. Thank you so much, my friend. Yep. Special thanks to Stephen Godfrey for joining us. Uh, I don't even know what to like react to. It's just, it's so interesting. I do, the one thing I will point to, and I think he's talked about this early in the conversation, and I think he's right about this because I, I had to make choices in my career. You're more of an actual newsman who's broken news. I, I do not view myself through that lens. I view myself as more of an opinion guy who sits back and observes and sure I've got connections and sources, but most of the time I'm using them to sort of formulate opinions and try to entertain and inform my audience. I, I have never viewed myself as get onto Twitter and tell everybody what's going on guy. And I think Steven's decision to whether it happened consciously or subconsciously to report on the process rather than being first with what's actually happening I, I'm with him. It's why we're doing this show. I am far more interested in what actually happens between a booster and a and a coach and an agent and an athletic director, even if it takes two weeks to, for us to learn that. I am far more interested in that than I am. Once once somebody makes breaks the news, we're all going to know who the coach is at some point pretty quickly. So it's not, you know, I, I'm with him on that. I, I have, I've had this discussion with, with, with folks that I've worked with before about recoverable information, about what is what is valuable as news and it's yeah it's nice to break a story but that is almost instantly recoverable information that means that if you say jeremy pruitt's been named the head football coach at tennessee i can pretty much go about and confirm that really quickly that one single fact but if you report all of the sausage about how it was done and who the booster factions were and who actually had the power in the decision-making process. That's not recoverable information that, and that makes it a hundred times more valuable. It is that, that is a that, that, that is the height of original reporting, not just one fact stories that everybody can instantly match. And Godfrey does that. He's made a career out of doing just that of, of going deep inside things and explaining them and, and, and getting more to the why and less of the, of the is of the single fact of the, of the story. And I think his readers are a lot better off for it. One of the things he did, if you, if you, if you don't follow him on, on Twitter, he's thir at 38 Godfrey. He's, he's a great follow. In the middle of the of the national championship game on Monday night, he was doing a a version of the film room that ESPN was doing, except he was just texting P5 and G5 assistant coaches about what they were seeing as they were watching it, and 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 kind of responding with their anonymous responses online. And 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 it's it was absolutely fascinating. Go back and go back and read his Twitter feed from Monday night. I, I was sitting there watching that as the game was going on and it was it was absolutely delightful i think he does those kind types of things better than almost anybody that being said i could tell you why Devonte smith was wide open <laughs> <laughs> i'm not i respect his work 
I'm not sure I need an assistant coach from a P5 school to tell me why Najee Harris ran for, you know, 150 yards. All right. Well, listen, I love talking with him. I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation, uh, but I do think he he has more insight than almost anybody else. Great, great to talk to him. All right, let's get to ratings and recommendations. Unless, Steve, you've got anything else to add to Stephen Godfrey's conversation, which again was over an hour. <laughs> I got nothing. All right, let's move on. We'll get to recommendations here momentarily. Uh, ratings, of course, the Tennessee Titans and the Baltimore Ravens in a playoff game, a 36.7. Again, this from Mark Binda of News Channel 5. Every rating point is about 11,000 households. So if you're doing some some math there, Steve, you're talking 400, over 400,000 houses in that's, Nashville. That's basically everybody. Everybody's watching the game. So uh, Bears, Saints, 21.1. Colts, Bills, 19.2, which is a really good football game. Brown Steelers, which was not a good football game, but in primetime on Sunday night, 18.2. And Rams, Seahawks, 16.9, which was a pretty good game and an upset and, as well. Yeah, that's Brown Steelers part two. You you just watched that two weeks in a row. So Well, at 28, 28 to nothing to start the game we'll we'll do that to a game but you know what's funny is they still they still all beat the bucks washington football club game from i believe saturday evening right was was when that game was so yeah, no, uh, no, nobody cared about that game and it, the betters cared a lot about that game <laughs> listen i there's nothing really to be said about titans i think you and i can take a look back at this season at some point where we digest all you know, whatever it is, 17 games of the Titan season and try to learn something about it. I, I, I'm actually more interested in what happened on Monday night, which is not going to be involved in this rating period, uh, which was the lowest rated national championship game since 2004. So next week on the show, I am very interested, interested to see against the NFL playoffs, you know, coming up this weekend, what the college football national championship game looked like, not only as a blowout, but pandemic induced season, with also, you know, the same old Alabama sitting up there. So, well, same old Alabama and same old Ohio State. I mean, that Ohio State is in the playoffs almost every year. Clemson's in the playoffs almost every year. You're, you're rotating out that fourth team. I'm bored by this lineup, but I, I just, I want new teams. I want new blood in there. And, and I'm less likely to, I mean, I'm, I'm a big sports fan. I'm going to, I'm, going to tune in but i'm less likely to be excited about it and stay with it if it's a rerun that's a blowout which is which is what this game ended up being yeah so again i think 18.7 million viewers lowest rated since 2004 for a championship game so not a good sign not a good sign and our guest stephen godfrey's had a lot to say in the last few years about the growing apathy in college football and the lack of fluidity at the top of the sport a conversation for another time, but I can't wait to see what it, what it, what it is in Nashville coming up next week on the show. All right, or let's get to recommendations here. What do you got for the good people? So if you care at all about sports media or the business of sports media, you should be following a guy named John Orand, O-U-R-A-N-D. And his, his Twitter feed is Orand underscore SBJ. He writes for the sports business journal and it is just one of the best Twitter feeds out there. He's he, he's a he's not trying to be a funny guy. He's it's just kind of chock full of news, uh, and and you'll get everything from rating stuff to sort of hiring and firing, kind of within the industry. He he's very good about trying to explain things and put them in context. As we're in an Olympic year, and the, the business of the Olympics is a huge thing. You know, I'm I'm looking on his feed right now here on a Wednesday afternoon, and and. You know, he's writing about the, the ad sales that are coming up for this delayed Olympics and kind of how it goes. He, di he did a lot about the, 
and we haven't talked too much about this, but the, the kind of the alternate feeds of the, of the NFL playoff games over the weekend, one of the components of that Saints Bears game was the fact that they had a special broadcast on Nickelodeon aimed only at kids. And Oren was one of the guys breaking the news that like in that demographic year over year, they added about 1.5 million viewers, you know, in that kids viewing kind of thing. And if you've seen, if you go, go find the highlights package of it, it's really fun. You know, they did like slime cannons when, when, uh, you know, (laughs) superimposed over the players when they scored a, uh, when they scored a touchdown, they had kid actor who plays young Sheldon pop up on, you know, out of the bottom of the screen and explain a penalty every single time there was a, there was, there was a flag thrown and you explain it in a kid's language. And it was kind of funny. It was, it was a really well thought out experiment. Would I want to watch, would a kid watch, you know, 16 weeks of this? Maybe, maybe not, but it's kind of a one-off experiment. I could see Nickelodeon doing something like this as a Super Bowl and it getting a lot of traction and, and being really interesting for, it was not dumbed down so much that parents would, would tune it out. And they had Nate Burleson on there, who's a really good analyst who probably maybe should be on the, who maybe should be in the Monday night booth right now. Anyway, Oren's uh, Twitter feed is fantastic and breaks all that stuff down as well as anybody in the, uh, in the industry. Sports Business Journal is a subscription only sort of thing. If you want to shell out for it, that's great. Uh, If you want to do the light version of it, read his Twitter feed, you'll get a lot of it. Yep. No question about it. I'm a big fan of his and have followed his work for a very long time. So I, I endorse that message. Steve, that's for sure. So I, I've been, I made a bunch of purchases, like right in the middle of, of COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown. And I was like, man, look at all these great books I want to read. Well, I didn't read any of them, uh, but I've started to now. I finished a book last week. I'm very proud of myself. What I've started to, to do is I've transitioned into like very much into the nonfiction world, probably five, six years ago. I read a lot of Don Winslow from a fiction standpoint, but even that's based a lot of it in nonfiction. I, I find that as I've gotten older, the you know reality is stranger than fiction mantra has really rung true with me. And there's so much of the world that we just don't know or read about routinely. So I bought a bunch of books and I haven't got to all of them yet. I could recommend The Spy and the Traitor, which is sort of like a real life espionage story of, of Cold War, all real, all, non, all nonfiction. That one's Ben McIntyre, I believe. I bought Say Nothing, from Patrick Radden Keefe, which is about the, the war in Ireland with the NRA and real life stuff that is crazier than like Marvel comic movies, right? But the one I want to recommend for our audience, which is largely in Tennessee, is written by Hampton Sides and it's called Hellhound on His Trail, which is all about the manhunt for James Earl Ray, the guy who killed Martin Luther King in Memphis. And, and it's all about this like two and a half month long search for this guy that captured the entire country and went across two continents. And I've only just begun it, but I'm already like fascinated by the whole thing because as someone who grew up way after Martin Luther King and was born way after Martin Luther King, those types of stories, I don't know as well as I should. And these are the types of stories that I now gravitate towards as a reader are these real life is stranger than fiction, completely insane stories and Hampton Sides is a is a really good writer and I think his so far I, I love everything I'm reading about it and it's a, a riveting account of the largest manhunt in United States history. And it was to track down Martin Luther King's killer. Very, very, very good stuff. Hellhound on his trail. There's a definite split in our house, fiction to nonfiction. Uh, my wife is very much uh she's a voracious reader of fiction. Uh she's in like two book clubs. She averages 
Uh, she averages about three to four books a month. I'm amazed by it all the whole time. I'm I read. I'm a much more of a nonfiction reader for for exactly that sort of reason because there's so many different interesting things. I, I tend to consume my my fiction, television, and movies, and and I watch a lot of that. And so I find that like when I want to spend time reading. I, I want it to be something really that I'm learning. And that book is on my list. It, unfortunately, very long list of, of, of stuff to read. I, I, cannot, uh, I cannot get enough of kind of that inside story uh, of a thing that grips kind of an audience and a, and a, and a people at a time. And, and again, the overwhelming sort of message for me, not just about this one particular book, but it's just people, if you've got the opportunity to take time to learn about something that has happened in real life, I promise you, you will be better off. Like, it's just, I I have now found that that is what, what the tier point, I want to be learning something that I can either tell my kids about, or I can, you know, I just, it's just, it's such important stuff. Like Martin Luther King getting shot was pretty bit was a pretty big deal. <laughs> like it was pretty important. And I don't really remember being taught or learning too much about the actual manhunt for the killer and what that was like. And so those are the kinds of things that I gravitate towards now. So check out those books, I, you know, say, say nothing. Uh, Spy and a Traitor and Hellhound on His Trail is the one that I'm uh, recommending officially on this week's show. So there you have it. Awesome. I think we're done. I think that's it. We've talked enough. Stephen Godfrey talked enough. I hope you guys all enjoyed it. Uh, Again, we have, uh, we'll give away a gift card next week on the show. We will give away a gift card next week on the show. That's what we're going to do. Sound good? Blame Godfrey for this week. Blame Godfrey for this week. Steve, where can people follow you? At Scavendish on Twitter. You can follow him there. You can follow me at Braden Gall. My name is Braden Gall. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Stephen Godfrey for giving us a few minutes of his time or a few hours. Uh, This has been Lamestream Sports on the 440 Sports Network.